Voices from the Border and Sierra Club. Borderlands put this presentation on together and did a lot of hard work to make it happen. And I really have to thank Eric Meza, who has really been a, a source of support and uh, help and a co-partner on this throughout the whole thing. Um, we are here today to watch the Writers of the Border Chronicle create a podcast. And they are two working journalists, and you're going to be watching them work. Um, if we have some audio issues, you might find they have to do audio checks. or It's, it's a working session here. Um, there is a slight change of plan. Eric Meza is going to be the sole interview to, interviewee today, and he's doing double duty. So not only did he help plan it, he's also going to be the interviewee. So he's going to be really tired after this. Um, I, I will say the plan here still is in existence for you guys to potentially be part of this podcast. So, you know, get your questions. Uh, I would say that, unlike Las Vegas, what happens on the border doesn't stay on the border. It goes all over the country. And it often goes all over the country in very distorted and very damaging ways. And it is really important that we have the Border Chronicle to tell the stories of what's happening truly and realistically and actually on the border. Voices from the Border thinks this is one of the most important voices from the border that we have. Without journalism, that really hits the nail on the head, really digs deeply into the issues, we would really be lacking here in the borderlands. Um, I would say that it is true that Voices from the Border, the Sierra Club Borderlands, and the Tin Shed, all nonprofits, we all need donations. You know, and I would encourage you all to donate as much as you can, whenever you can, to these groups. But our purpose here today is about the Border Chronicle. We would like folks to really consider subscribing with paid subscriptions to this service because we want to keep them in business for a long time. And we also would like you to consider giving gift certificate or gifting your relatives and friends who don't live on the border and telling, you know, who ask you all kinds of questions about the border. You can say, hey, I'm giving you a subscription to the Border Chronicles. Read it, you'll find out. Especially those ones who say, aren't you scared living down there? <laughs> so with that, I'm going to turn this over to India Aubrey, who is the president of the Board of Directors of Voices from the Border. And she's going to do some bios of the three people sitting here. Well, first I want to acknowledge Maggie, who is the... Um, Outreach Coordinator for Voices from the Border and a fellow board member. And she conceived of this very novel idea, which we thought was brilliant. And um, thanks for playing along. <laughs> um, so yeah, and thank you to Casina, as, as Maggie said, um, who's been, um, who's always a tremendous help and supportive in these endeavors. Um, so thank you, Maggie, for, um, for thinking of this very innovative idea, which could potentially turn into a series, depending upon how things go. 
Um, so let me start with welcoming Melissa Del Bosque and Todd Miller. And um, they're both journalists from Tucson and co-write the Border Chronicle, and which is an online source for uh, original and investigative analysis uh, from the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, cumulative, co collectively, they have about 40 years of experience in the field, correct, reporting, um, and uh, have been in media outlets from the New York Times to In These Times, as well as writing several books. So Todd is well-loved here, well, pretty well-known in Patagonia. He's been here several times promoting um, his books, book signings, um, his most recent one, Build Bridges, Not Walls. So he was here, was it last year? I think it was last spring. Yeah, I think last spring. Um, so we are big fans here. And he, I just recently found out that you are also, you've spent a long time living and working in Oaxaca, Mexico, and hails from Niagara, Buffalo, uh, Buffalo Niagara Falls area, and um, is a long-suffering um, Bulls fan as well. <laughs> Um, and he is a recipient of the 2018 Izzy Award for Excellence in Independent Journalism. But perhaps his biggest accomplishment is he recently survived a month-long road trip with two, two toddlers. <laughs> so um, that must be acknowledged. That's nothing short of heroic. Um, so Melissa Del Bosque moved to Tucson in March of 2021 after spending a couple of eventful years in Mexico City during the pandemic, as I understand it. And from 20, uh, 2007 to 2018, she worked for the Texas Observer, which is a statewide progressive magazine where she won an Emmy, a National Magazine Award, and several other national journalism prizes for her reporting on the Texas-Mexico border. Eric Meza is the Borderlands coordinator for Sierra Club, and Eric was born in the Sonoran Desert of Mexico, and his work is to promote a holistic approach on community development and understanding of how all the complex dynamics of the borderlands affect the frontline communities and the environment of this region. So without further ado, I'll hand this over to Todd and Melissa to begin the program. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Hi, thank you all for coming. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Thank you to Voices from the Border and to Sierra Club and to all of you who came out today, I guess maybe we'll get a rainstorm while we're in here. <laughs> we'll see. I think I just heard thunder. <laughs> Hopefully we don't lose power. <laughs> that could be kind of exciting, though. Um, so we are the Border Chronicle, Todd, Todd and I. And um, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Uh, for a long time, um, I was in Texas, as, as you heard from the bio, my bio, I moved out here recently and I covered the Texas-Mexico border for about 20 years. And throughout that time, I've admired Todd's work and I feel like Todd's like my Arizona counterpart. And we always talked about doing something together where we could report on the border from a border community perspective um, for a national audience. Um, you know, somebody who is here in the community and not parachuting into the border region and then kind of putting their spin on it for uh, whatever publication they're working on. Um, so we started this in September of 2021. Uh, 
around 9-11 because we wanted to talk about the Department of Homeland Security, which was formed after 9-11 and which really changed uh, the border profoundly um, in terms of, you know, the militarization, the wall construction, which we're going to talk about pretty in, in depth um, with Eric. Um, and uh, so we, we cover a number of issues. Um, my, my sort of current obsession is with the rhetoric around the border and the, and the political rhetoric. Um, and uh, if you see up there, you know, I've got selling chaos at the border. I mean, a lot of the coverage, and you all know you live here, but if you talk to your relatives or friends who live in other states far from the border, they think that we're in a war zone and that, you know, there's bullets flying and uh, it's just death and destruction, you know, 24-7. And as, of course, we know that that's not true. <laughs> um, so, and leading up to the midterm elections, things have really gotten ratcheted up in terms of invasion rhetoric. So I write a lot about, you know, how this invasion rhetoric is used to really uh, promote this very sort of racist narrative, xenophobic narrative, um, and... Uh, you know, to get people elected on a very sort of xenophobic and sort of racist uh, platform. Um, and um, so so what we do is we cover the entire border because we're insane. <laughs> we're based in Tucson, but we cover like, you know, the whole almost 2,000 miles. Um, so... So, you know, that's challenging, which is why we're trying to build our, our subscriber base so that we can get more more resources to be able to drive to different communities. Uh, recently, I went out to Yuma, um, Arizona, which has been used as a backdrop for a lot of political ads you may have seen with that invasion-type rhetoric. Uh, but what is happening is that the, the border, since 20, March 2020 with Title 42 and Remain in Mexico and these different programs has been basically shut down to asylum seekers. And in Yuma, there are these gaps in the wall um, where asylum-seeking families and so forth have been presenting. And so I was there. And uh, one thing I like to do is to compare... Uh, different communities along the border because I spent so much time in Texas. I find it really interesting to see how, you know, some communities are, are different, but they also have a lot of similarities. And, and one problem in the Rio Grande Valley, which is the southernmost tip of Texas, is that uh, people down there are finding a lot of passports, birth certificates, and really important confidential documents belonging to asylum seekers that have been dumped on the U.S. side of the border, which is very unusual, and this has been happening now for a couple of years since the pandemic. And, you know, you'll see backpacks and, and all of people's, um, you know, the things that they really hold dear have are been dumped, you know. So when I was in Yuma, I noticed the same thing. I mean, there were these big dumpsters full of people's possessions, and then there were, you know, passports from Haiti, from Cuba, um, things that people would not part with unless it was taken away from them um, that were on the ground. And so I thought, huh, this is interesting. You know, why is this happening on the U.S. side of the wall? Because there's a common narrative where they'll say, 
oh, well, the hum human smugglers tell the migrants that they, you know, ditch your confidential documents, you know, south of the border so they can't identify you. You know, there's these narratives that go around, and but it's actually not true. And plus, this is happening on the U.S. side of the wall anyway, so obviously something else is going on there. So, so I did a story, you know, saying, look, this is happening in Texas. This is happening in Arizona. This is unusual. So, you know, I called Customs and Border Protection. I said, hey, you know, here's all these photographs I'm sending you of people's passports laying in the dirt, you know, next to uh, these garbage dumpsters, what's going on. And of course, you know, they give me some sort of, um, you know, amorphous type of non-response. Um, but but they are now investigating it. The new commissioner, who's you know the, of CBP, who's the former uh, police um, chief of Tucson, yeah, Chris Magnus is now doing an investigation to find out what exactly is going on there. Um, and then there was a protest in Phoenix, so it's good that there's you know there's been some um, some traction on that, and I'm I'm hoping now that we can get a protest going in Texas, <laughs> where where you know at the other site where a lot of people's documents are being trashed by Border Patrol, you know, including like um, X-rays that children brought with them, you know, to show that they have a steel rod in their spine, um, you know, for an asylum claim. So, so. You know, what we're trying to do is just because we've been doing this for so long, I think, you know, context is important and history is important. Um, and and, and to, to point that out in a story about the border, because a lot of the stuff that we see happening here happens in a cyclical fashion, I would say. Um, so... So we just really try to to have that context and the history in in the coverage from the local community perspective, but for a larger audience to just sort of try to push back against the misinformation and the and the disinformation. Um, uh, one popular term that we really talk about in Texas a lot is border theater, and if you notice, the governor Governor Abbott in Texas is very much about border theater. <laughs> I mean, he's he's done you know the steel wall of, of, you know, state police cars. He's done, you know, barbed wire. He had, when I was uh, in Del Rio not long after the Haitians were there and he had brought out the National Guard and they had Humvees lining, you know, the highways with their guns pointed towards the river and like some really bored National Guard soldiers looking at their cell phones because <laughs> there was really nothing to 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 battle, you know. But it's it's a lot of it is about visuals. So, um, so we often refer to that as border theater or political theater. Um, so I was supposed to talk ten or fifteen minutes. Has it already been ten minutes? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I probably should have put a, a timer out because I'm gonna. Okay, so I'm gonna pass the mic over to uh, to Todd. <laughs> I think it's no, it wasn't that. I think it was almost right, right? It was right. Yeah. Um. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Melissa. Um, it's great. It's really great to be here again in Patagonia for me. This has been here several, many times. And, um, I'm loving how green it is. The, the drive down from Tucson was just pretty spectacular. Um, so yeah, so it's ni nice to be here. Um, and I just, I want to again, thank, uh, Voices from the Border, uh, for sponsoring this event and being, um, and doing the introduction and, and along with Sierra Club, of course, um, Borderlands. And, um, I wanted to mention too, in some of my rep uh, reporting, I mean, I've collaborated with Voices from the Border, um, who have helped me, for example, go interview people in Nogales and different places where Voices is working, uh, such as um, uh, I was able to go to some apartments that where asylum seekers are staying, which probably some people know about here, and um, and interview families and and uh, who are staying there. And uh, um, it's a it's a remarkable place because you go to this apartment and from you can go out to the balcony and look and from the apartment you can see the bo the border you can see the like the 20 foot wall bollard style wall in the distance you see the rolling hills of, of nogales you see you can see one of those fixed uh towers that are looking into mexico you can see a green stripe border patrol vehicle um and behind that uh, you can see the Santa Rita Mountains, right in the distance, like, and it's it's a weird contrast, you know, the the gorgeousness of the Santa Ritas and Mount Wrightson and Mount Mount Hopkins in the distance, and then the border apparatus, and then you're in this apartment talking with families who are, you know, fleeing often in this case, or often fleeing, you know, really violent situations, and but they're stopped at that at that borderline. And just that that collaboration, you know, with voices from the border, and as one example, and being able to get in and and uh, you know talk to um, these families, you get to learn the real stories, right? You hear you hear well, when you th think about Title Forty Two, for example, you hear lots of stories about Title Forty Two, but when you go and talk in the, to the families, and they say they've been how they go to the the port of entry and they're rejected at the port, right? And and uh, that's you're getting the story, right? Uh, you're getting this this uh, really on the ground perspective, which is what we're trying to do, you know, a lot with the with the Border Chronicle. In fact, Melissa's article on Tuesday really goes in into that subject as well. She went to Kino Border Initiative and and talked to people there. Um, but I wanted to mention one one story. I was there um, at at these apartments, and and there was a two year old in a family named Gabriela, and we were looking at we we're looking out the back towards the border wall and then towards Mount Wrightson. And she said, um, she said, or she asked, and I thought this was the best question of the day, really, that I, I better than any question I, I asked the whole day. She, she, she asked, you know, why can't we like a bunny, like a bunny, right? Jump over that border wall and go to those beautiful mountains. I'm like, good question, Gabriela, you know? So, um, so there, so you know that's uh, that's uh, um, you know just a just an example of what we can do with and get that kind of journalism. You know, 
the journalism also of the unexpected, I guess you could say. And then, um, and then speaking of Title 42, I wanted to mention that um, we started uh, maybe about six, six months ago doing what we call discussion forums or discussion threads. And one of them was on actually Title 42. So we invite experts um, who um, will come in and talk with subscribers for, Border, for the Border Chronicle. And like, for example, experts on Title 42. So if you had questions about Title 42, what is this thing? How long is it gonna last? When is there any possibility it's gonna end? You know, you can come and talk to all these people that are in the know and often people that are in the know, in the know, in the know, right? Like they know what's going on in a deep sort of way. Um, and that's something that we've been proud of, you know, starting to do these, these four, these, these threads, which are basically online, but we're thinking, oh, maybe, you know, uh, we could do the forums, you know, where we have panelists and it's a video forum where people can come in or, but a lot of it we're thinking also, it's really important to us is to have this interaction with our, with the readership and the subscribers and that like, like right now, like what we're experiencing right now that everyone's a part of this, like, it's not just us. It's like, everyone where it was an interaction or intercambio as i say you know like a exchange um and that's an important part of this of our journalism um i also wanted to mention like one of the one of the themes that i've done a lot of reporting on um is uh um technology um and looking at the technology part of it and that's uh um, like, for example, has pe people here have heard of the robotic dogs? I'm sure, sure of that, right? Have no one? Okay. Well, some people have, some people haven't. Yeah, they're, they're, so the robotic dogs um, are just, in, first of all, it's an example. Robotic dogs, there's a, they were announced by Department of Homeland Security, has gone through tests um, in February, and they could be deployed on the border as maybe automated Border Patrol agents, you know, can you imagine? Uh, so, um, so part of the reporting that I've done, like I, I went to the Border Security Expo in San Antonio, and I actually got to meet a ro uh, what I will call a robo dog. And uh, I went and um, to the booth and talked to the vendor and the vent and right behind the vendor was a big picture of the robotic dog with a with a slogan underneath it that said, robots that feel the world right and then then uh they the the vendors did a demonstration and brought the robotic dog in all its golden chrome glory right up to me and started wagging its tail back and forth um and right when that was happening another man and this is the sort of stuff that happens when you're on the ground at places like the border security expo or the different places you can report on a man stepped to the right to the side and, and said, oh, that's cute, you know, because the robo dog was actually, I hate to admit it, look cute. And, um, and uh, the guy, then the man said, you know, and I assume he, I don't know what he, he was in plain clothes, so I'm not sure, but he said, so can you weaponize this dog? And then, then the vendor said, yes, you can weaponize the dog. And, and then he saw me like <laughs> perk up and begin to write my notebook and he kind of silent. He just, he, he became quiet. Um, so, 
So yeah, so looking at the technology, it's it's an important part right now, you know, like looking at the border. Um, there's, of course, a lot of discussion, and rightfully so, of the border wall, but also technology has been a big thing that the Biden administration has been promoting. And, um, and looking to like at the kind of privatization part of it, and there's been 105,000 uh, contracts issued from Customs and Border Protection and ICE to private companies from 2008 to 2020 worth $55 billion. So what, looking at this kind of nexus, or I would call an industrial complex, and how that works in Washington and how that shapes policy, that's also like, that's been an important theme for a lot of my reporting. The, I did, a, my Thursday piece was um, on facial recognition, if anyone's interested in learning more about that. Which is, <laughs> um, so, that's, so that's a part of it. Um, and also the last thing I wanna talk about before we go into our interview is our podcasts. Um, and our podcasts are, um, we've started actually right from the start doing podcasts um, twice a week. One is, oh, sorry, yeah, not twice a week, <laughs> twice a month, twice a month. Um, and as we, and we actually, our, I should say our pieces come out twice a week. We, like every Tuesday and Thursday, we have, um, so twice a week for our pieces, or which are often written pieces, or they could be the podcasts or something else. But the podcasts are twice a month, and we usually interview people like Eric, you know, um, experts, um, of different, a wide variety of different, you know, people that have an experience with the borderlands. They offer, oftentimes, just great insight and knowledge, and and, and deepen understanding. And often, and, and we like to offer this audio kind of format. And if you go back to our first podcast, you'll see how much we've, how far we have come. The first podcast was, I think we were, it was really long and the audio was bad. We had no intro, we had no closing. It was <laughs> a truly, uh, I think it was a work of art, you know, you know, when you do good, good work of art, you have a draft of something and it's awesome. But it still was, yeah, maybe I'm trying to look at it optimistically here. But, um, but it's Amy Wan, which is Amy Wan, who people who are familiar with Amy Wan from the Tonopham Nation. Uh, Amy Wan is like a is a visionary, you know. So her, so her words, you know, are you know that's that's who the first podcast was, and that was about one year ago. So here we are, a year later, with you, and, um, uh, and we're doing uh, our very first podcast that's live. So. Congratulations to all of us. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, so, oh, I wanted to, and, and I know that there's a lot of people that are interested um, in climate change here in uh, Patagonia, at least, you know, that I've, in other discussions that I've had here. And um, I would recommend, uh, there was a podcast with Amali Tower of the Climate Refugees um, that we did, a, maybe a, a couple months ago, and I'd recommend going to to listen to that. And cli climate change, of course, is another one of the big issues that we're looking at and that kind of intersection, climate, displacement, and borders, um, and trying to make those connections journalistically. Um, and you'll, you should expect a, a series of pieces 
on that coming up, especially as we gear up for the the next UN summit on climate. So um, that's coming our way. And that and along those lines, what I just want to say, you know, the in environmental aspects of of the border are are really important for us and and um, journalistically speaking, and that's why um, it's really great to be here and have Eric Mesa here with us um, to interview as our year, I guess, it, has it been a year since our first podcast, or has it been Just 11 months? As of September, yeah. As of, as of September, September. September, yeah. Uh, all right, so not quite a year. I'm, I'm estimating, but it's but it's almost a year, and you, and and you could go back. Like we've just we've just we've had a bunch, so many like really interesting interviews. So half by Melissa and half by myself, and they're just across the across the board. And we're oh, one last thing, we're trying to expand it, the podcasting. Like we want to do some more audio reporting, and that's why again we're hoping for you know. The more subscribers we get, the more resources we get, the more we're able to do more stuff. Right now, we're doing two podcasts a month. We'd probably want to do more, like three or four, or even more than that. We want to hire an audio editor who helps us because we we're kind of audio <laughs> audio novices. talent novices challenge. Yeah, so um, novices. Yeah, so bringing in like some more um, people in that sense and be able to do reporting that way. Um, but anyhow, this, so, but it's great to be here in this first uh, kind of live uh, audio podcast for us. And um, thank you, Eric, for, uh, for um, being here with us today. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, and we are really excited to learn about um, what you have to share and the insight that you bring to this really super important issue on the borderlands. And um, I just wanted to start out like with the first question to you. Um, first of all, just like thinking about the new, there's news recently of um, the, that um, the Biden administration was going to continue construction of the wall in around Yuma, um, I guess filling in the gaps, so to speak. And it just got me thinking about, you know, the can't, you know, the campaign that happened during the Trump years. Um, it got me thinking also about, you know, the environmental damage, the, that, the wall construction you know what what happened with the wall that happened with the wall construction um i can't help to think about like the chopped up saguaros you know on the on those dirt roads or the quito vaquito springs the sacred springs that were almost dried dried up um and so i wanted to um hear hear from you like what is what is what you, what has been the environmental damage that you've seen and how what what do you see as a community response to that, including the Sierra Club borderlands? And um, I have one one other like addendum to it, which is um, I remember like a few years back, Sierra Club borderlands was also really concerned with the the road construction. I'm sure that's still the case, like going through 
like Organ Pipe National Monument and Cabeza Prieta um, Wildlife Refuge of what is there like 12,000 miles of wildcat roads, mainly done by the Border Patrol. And thinking about this technological infrastructure, which also, you know. Thank you. Um, well, uh, yeah, thank you so much. I just want to get uh, started by also acknowledging everybody in the room, especially organizers and everybody who made some time this Saturday to come up and uh, talk about these really important issues that we all as uh, Borderlands community face. And it's, a, it's just an honor to be here. I think Tora and Melissa are like a big inspiration. I always uh, look up forward for their article of the week, and I highly encourage you also to uh, learn more about the work that they do. Hello, hello, okay. Um, so I can project my voice eventually if that happens again. So um, yeah, um, I just want to also say, um, well, you all, just a reminder, my name is Eric Mesa. I'm the Borderlands Coordinator for Sierra Club. Uh, my preferred pronouns are he, him, L, and I'm so happy to be here on the ancestral and occupied lands of Otan people and Apache and many other tribes that might have called this place home as well. I'm really uh, thankful to be here and beautiful place as I like uh, as I drove by how green it is and hopefully we get some rain. And I've been. Uh, being part of the Borderlands work for the last year, but I've been a Borderlands person my whole. So, um, so one of the things uh, I grew up in Mexico in a small town called Guaymas. Uh, I don't know if anybody's familiar with it. Yeah. So Guaymas is my my hometown. So I, since I can remember, like I started traveling to the border because I had the privilege to own a tourist visa, my parents at that time. So I would come and get my uh, Christmas presents from Rogales and, and be super happy, go home. Recorded one. Okay. Sound check here. Can you hear me better? Awesome. All right. So, being an environmental organization, soon realized that the environment it is threatened by a lot of different outside forces that are happening here, and by doing environmental work, we cannot really forget about immigration work, because some of the important things that are like the things that are affecting the most the environment on the borderlands are usually migration related. And I'm talking about the border wall. I think for you all to start getting a little bit of a sense of how this happened, it's really important to know some very important uh, parts of history, like uh, things that really changed the way that this, um, the government started doing action in the borderlands, especially after 9-11. I think when 9-11 happens, seems like when you started doing a lot of your work, also the government started putting a lot of attention in the border as a target to s that was where most of the 
illegal terrorists were coming into the country, so they start creating something that is called the Real ID Act. This is really important for us because under in the Real ID Act, they created a section called the 102 section. With that section, they allow the government to waive all the laws that are meant to protect the environment. Pretty much any law that you can imagine that is meant to protect the environment, like Clean Water Act, uh, migratory birds, clean air, uh, archaeological sacred grounds for Native Americans, pretty much anything that you can imagine is there and has been waived for them to start building border walls. So what that tells you right away is that the government doesn't really uh, protect the borderlands as it does with the rest of the country, right? The laws here don't just, they don't apply anymore. Um, that's when we, uh, when the organization started doing uh, some of the work in the borderlands because we noticed right away that the substitution, because there has been some kind of a barrier, vehicle barriers, also known as Normandy, Normandy uh, barriers back in the back in the day that stopped vehicles from passing through but after 2005 they start building some kind of a fence when you look at that fence honestly the first thing that you look at is like wow I can easily jump that fence right you can jump that fence you can cut through that fence you can go around that fence but the question is do animals that live on this desert that have been living on this desert for thousands of years, are they able to do that? And the answer is no. They won't be able to do that. Instead of that, they will look at these barriers and turn around and probably go away uh, because they pose a threat for them. There is something unknown. It's not relatable to them. So you're, we're cutting already uh, what it is a territory for an, a species, in some cases an endangered species, already on half. So we are also cutting their chances of survival on half. That's what started uh, in 2005, but then obviously when Donald Trump came into president, things started getting worse and worse, as the motto of his campaign was uh, build the wall, supported by a lot of Americans, and who's gonna pay for it? Mexico, right? Uh, and people realized soon enough that it was not Mexico who was paying for it. So also we start think we start looking at the new design of border wall that was happening and all of the investment that was going, but because all of those laws were waived and Donald Trump didn't waive those environmental laws, but he waived laws in regards to contractors that were going to do the wall, so he can actually hire people that will put money back into his campaign. Then we start realizing that a lot of the the work that was happening, it was happening really fast. And it was happening with nobody really uh, paying too much attention to it. The things that you will see on the media were very little, and they were usually a photo op of somebody just right next to the wall look, saying, oh, look how beautiful it is. That's gonna solve all of our problems. But nobody was able to see what are like, what's called staging stations, which are, giant clear cuts in the middle of the desert by acres and where they were mixing materials to do the foundation of the border wall. We're talking about masses, huge amounts of uh, concrete. So we got piles of uh, 
piles of gravel, sand, and concrete being mixed on site. As Todd mentioned, they were also pumping a lot of water from the desert, uh, water tables, opening new roads, enhancing the roads that were already existing by double, sometimes three, three times the size, blasting tops of mountains, creating a lot of erosion on really steep hills, blocking uh, canyons with all of this uh, explosion, all the debris that blew out, it was just piling up into canyons, not allowing what's called the sheet flow of water moving from one side of the border to another. And there is a lot of different impacts that people was not aware that was happening. So I think some of the biggest uh, work that we do is just raise awareness and show people what's happening and what they can do about it. So uh, I'm going to stop right there. Maybe uh, if there is more questions about that later, we can continue talking about environmental impacts. But um, yeah, I tend to go talk too much. So. Well, thank you so much. That was um, super, super informative. And is this off again? No. Okay, I just need to talk louder into the microphone. Um, so yeah, I, I was I had a lot of thoughts while you were while you were talking and, and, and coming from from Texas, I mean one thing I'm very interested in is the different dynamics from state to state in trying to get people to care about the environment and the wall because uh, in, in Texas that's a very, very hard, case, and this is maybe even unfair to, to ask you because you represent Arizona, uh, <laughs> but uh, I used to work in the Texas legislature for a senator from the border, and I worked in the environmental committee, and any kind of like progressive environmental bill that would come up, you know, would just die a horrible death because of the oil and gas industry, for one thing, because they are so powerful and there's so much lobbying, there's so much money. And always when we would try to talk about the environmental issues around the border wall, they just get quashed, you know, like, oh, you're worrying about some little crane or some sort of, you know, um, rodent. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very tough there, I think, uh, in, in terms of, environment, making an environmental case. And I was always very, very, um, it was so nice to see Arizona because, I mean, you have a real environmental community here, you know. There's a lot of organizing in comparison to, uh, it's just such a tough environment in Texas. And then, of course, we have New Mexico and California, which have a different dynamic. Um, right now, the Rio Grande Valley, which I mentioned earlier, that's the, the senator I worked for represented that area. And I and I've done a lot of reporting in that area over the years, they're in a terrible drought right now, and there's drought restrictions where they're cutting the water. And they just a report just came out that they're pulling water out of the canal to build the border wall. Even though the farmers can't use the water, you know, people are restricting their showers, and but they're still... And, and the border wall construction has continued down there, too, under the guise of it's a, a levy, is what they're saying, because they have an unusual um, situation down there because they have this massive levee floodway because they're right there on the on the river. So the wall is built about a mile or a mile and a half in, and then they have this massive floodway. So it's a, it's a, what it is is a levee. So they've now built like a 30-foot wall on top of the levee. 
So they never actually stopped constructing the wall there because they say they're fixing the levee in, in quotation marks when really they're just filling in all the gaps that were left uh, once Trump took office. And so at this moment, they're just pulling water out of like the irrigation canals to keep building the wall that they started under Trump. So actually, that's a long comment. And <laughs> but I, I mean, if you could talk about just sort of the, the challenge for the Sierra Club in, in making a case for the environment and the different dynamics from state to state and sort of how that, how do you strategize that or how do you deal with that? Thank you. Yeah, and in order to, uh, to uh, answer that question, I'd like to give credit to uh, the Border Coalition, which is a coalition that has been formed uh, from many different environmental groups that exist in different uh, states. So through that coalition, we were able to do some network from people doing work in California, Arizona always get the most representation, to be honest. We are in a state that definitely have a lot of people that is concerned about the environment. We also take a big part of the border wall. Uh, uh, Arizona is, is big. We do have some people from Texas as well, uh, but definitely we can use more. Uh, there is a lot of things happening in Texas, as you mentioned. Uh, one of the things that come to the top of my mind is the National Butterfly Center. And I don't know if some of you are uh, familiar with this uh, site that exists in um, uh, Hidalgo, is the county in Texas. And it's just a beautiful uh, space for community to gather that it is, the um, whole mission is to protect and create, restore the environment for more butterflies to be able to live there. And it was uh, the border wall. They have always been opposing the border wall because it, got, it goes right in front of the property and interrupts the migration back and forth from some of these butterfly species. Uh, recently, it was actually shut down because there was construction, more construction going on and there was some uh, threats to the staff of the center by QAnon conspiracies. So it got really bad uh, and we, uh, definitely offering a lot of support. Uh, Sierra Club, in collaboration with this center, created a movie called Ay Mariposa, uh, which I uh, recommend if you're able to look that tells the story about this center. Uh, in right now, there is a lot of things happening in California as well. Some of you might be familiar with Friendship Park, which is a park located right in the border of Tijuana and San Diego, right at the coastline. And they are also right now, as we speak, trying to build or they call it uh, replace some of the old wall and build that new type of wall will completely stop uh, or shut down access to people that wants to uh, come out and take a look at the at the garden, uh, acti local activists over there created a binational garden, which I think is just such a beautiful thing to do uh, on a border, you know, like really build those relationships and around something really positive where families could come and see each other after years of not seeing each other. And with Border Patrol supervision, of course, and now uh, recently Border Patrol decided to shut it down during the pandemic and bulldoze all of the plants that were planted there to attract pollinators and close access to families there. So there has been a big campaign to reopen Friendship Park. Um, 
I highly encourage everybody to uh, look at their website and uh, sign up the petition as well. As thankfully, through this petition that just went out last week, uh, Border Patrol or Department of Homeland Security uh, paused the construction of Border Wall so they can get some community input. Just like gives us some hope at least that there is like when community gets together and actually get uh, some action going and uh, really speaks out for themselves, things can happen. So I uh, think that has inspired a movement also here in Arizona and we'll continue to uh, doing those, uh, putting that pressure, you know, what it needs to be. Thanks. Um, and I, I would suggest Melissa actually um, wrote a series on the National Butterfly Center called Bar Butterflies and Barbarians, is that right? Or Barbarians? Butterflies and Barbarians. So I recommend, I highly recommend that series, especially, you know, all the challenges that Eric was just mentioning. She gets it down in the text as well. Um, so Eric, uh, I did want to ask you too about, um, you know, like the Borderlands project, but also in the context of um, um, now, from what I understand, in, in the Sierra Club, there's been a history where there's been differing, I guess you could say, opinions on immigration, right? Including um, some pretty strong anti-immigrant stances, right, in the past. Um, and so I'm curious, like, to ask you about that, about those historic dynamics within the Sierra Club and how that has formed the Borderlands work and how it, and does it, is it still something, a dynamic in, in what you're doing right now? Like how, like, um, yeah, so the historic dynamic and is it affecting you still? Um, or is that something that's been resolved and it's in the past and you're moving forward? Thank you, Todd. Yeah, and just uh, a Sierra Club, you know, like going even further back in history, some of you uh, are familiar with the organization, some of you might not heard about it before, but it was, it's, uh, this year we are in the 130th anniversary, so it's one of the oldest uh, environmental organizations in the country, and it was funded by one person called John Muir. Some of you might be familiar as well with John Muir. And we also like to acknowledge that history, you know, even as we recognize some of the achievements that John Muir did, we also like to acknowledge that he did pretty racist comments amongst uh, towards uh, black and indigenous people. So that part of the history, you know, I think for us in order to move forward in an inclusive way, we need to acknowledge those harms that created. Even so later he apologized. I mean, we still like to say that that was not okay and it, sh it should not be tolerated anymore. So moving forward, yes, back in the 80s and the 90s for what I heard, because I wasn't there, um, there was a lot of, uh, at the beginning I started as uh, staying neutral with immigration and there was some movement inside of the organization, as you might know, some people, there is, uh, it's a volunteer uh, based organization. We depend a lot of people doing volunteer work and doing, uh, getting some memberships. So some members 
uh, are, once you become a member, you can become uh, part of an executive committee and take some decisions and run your um, a program in your area as you see best fit. So some people that start running these programs start having really strong anti-immigration stance. And I, for what I understand that happened is that as time went by and these uh, people started uh, trying to organize against anti-immigrant, there was the counterpart that came up and a group highly opposed to those came to a, a voting and those people that were doing the anti-immigrant uh, uh, stance were uh, voted out. So we definitely, uh, right now, and I think for what it gave birth to the Borderlands program, which we are uh, the only chapter in the country that actually has a Borderlands program, and by that being said, already says that we need to really, as an organization, uh, strengthen our borderlands uh, programs because, as we were mentioning earlier, it's not only an Arizona thing. You know, we have a lot of things happening in the country, and I wish there was more help uh, and more people involved on this work in behalf of Sierra Club. I um, also um, wanted to say that. Um, the Borderlands program started not in an easy way, started really hard during those times. And little by little, we've been like really pushing forward to show the importance of the Borderlands program and so, and how important it is to fund work related to protecting the lands uh, in the border region as well. So right now, as we speak, uh, it has been definitely um, easier as we move forward to a more inclusive uh, era of the Sierra Club where we're really moving away from all those different patterns that we had in the past, like in the 80s and the 90s. During this time, we're really looking forward to uh, make sure that the communities that are on the front line they're well represented, especially when we talk about the environment. We cannot just continue to talk about the environment without the communities that live on these environments. Like for us, uh, that is actually, at least for me, is the most important part of the work. Engage with communities, community development, and try to elevate the voices of the communities that get affected by all of these injustices on the borderlands. So, it's not easy, but we uh, we work, we do our best. You know, I, I, I actually wanted to ask for a little bit more detail of specifically what, what Borderlands is involved in doing and what it would like to do in, in more specifics because I'm super interested in this program and, and I really hope that it expands, you know, along the entire border. I would love to see that happen. Thank you, Melissa. Yeah, I think currently we are... Uh, doing some things uh, we try to do. Um, one of the things that is currently happening is we are on a litigation process with the U.S. government. We sued the uh, U.S. government in 2019. Uh, we got Sierra Club versus Biden in a collaboration with Southern Border Community Coalition. And this is in behalf of all the illegal funds that were used to build the border wall. And 284 and 2808 
is the codes for these funds that were originally allocated for uh, military uh, operations and drug-related issues. And all of these funds, we're talking about billions of dollars, were put into construction of border wall illegally by Donald Trump. So when that happened, we sued the government and we are fighting and we, I can unfortunately not disclose too much information about the current happenings or where we are right now because it's confidential for what I hear from the judge. So, but I can say a few things, you know, I think uh, for us and going back to Todd's first question about the environmental impacts of the border wall, we're really fighting for a lot of those funds that were used. There were some leftovers. When Joe Biden came into presidency, uh, into presidency, he stopped the border wall construction. So there were funds that were floating around. We want to make sure that those funds don't go to build more border wall, but they actually go to restoration of the environment that has been impacted by the border wall construction. And we're talking about uh, restoring all those roads. We're talking about uh, repairing those uh, sheet flows. Sheet flow is the water moving across a road because when they went with the bulldozers, they created what's called a berm on the side of the road and that completely blocks the water from one going to a place to another. Of course, wildlife passages, that's a huge issue on the borderlands right now. So we wanna make sure that wildlife passages are integrated into the design of the border wall construction. One of our biggest uh, asks that we're doing is to make sure that there is a thing uh, that they included on the design called storm gates. These storm gates are, so when the monsoon season comes, they open these gates so the water can go through. You can see some on the San Pedro River that are actually open, I think, a year long, right? They're most of the time, they close them sometimes, just on the monsoon season, but they're all over. And if you've been here long enough, you know that when it rains in the Sonoran Desert, we got something called the flash flood, right? And that water, when it comes, comes so strong, and it has taken walls in the past. But the problem is not only that it will take the wall down, it will actually bring all this debris, pile it against the wall, and all the water that we depend on this side, or they depend on the other, will completely be blocked, completely changing uh, ecosystems that have been living on, like in these environments for thousands of years. So we know also that these migration corridors are happening where there is a wash. Most of the desert creatures move through the washes. So we're advocating that they leave these storm gates open and they, that they leave them open all year long so they can serve as a storm gate to let the water go through, but they can also serve as a migration corridor for all these creatures. And we know Border Patrol has the technology. If they really want to track migrants through those spaces, they can do it. But why do we continue stopping wildlife migration? That is the big issue. And that's the really the one we're pushing really hard on this litigation process. We're also pushing really hard on lighting. Uh, there is a lot of lighting structure that was installed. Some of you know desert creatures are nocturnal. So when you put big stadium lights in the middle of the desert, and a wall, and a huge road, and 
helicopters and a lot of cars going on that definitely affects the behavior of all these creatures that call this place home. We're also uh, making sure that with these funds that I discussed earlier, there is no more border, border wall construction on the Rio Grande Valley and uh, that they take all of the debris that was left on those staging areas and there is a revegetation of these areas using native seeds and one of the other things that we're asking is that there is funding for restoration of the habitat of the endangered species such as the Sonoran Desert uh, Bighorn, Sonoran Pronghorn, and Jaguar, Ocelot, and the Mexican Gray Wolf. We are, uh, we are asking for them to allocate some funds for that as well. And we know that because these creatures cover such a large territory, other creatures will be uh, positively impacted by this. Um, and we want reports. We want to make sure that when they commit to something, they actually report back to us and they let us know what kind of work that they're doing and if they're doing properly and if they don't, well, we'll just sue them again, yeah. right? So I think that's, uh, that's going to be happening and we are far away, we're really far on the negotiations and we're hoping that very soon we're going to have a, a, a settlement. So stay, uh, I'll keep you updated. All right. Um. Just one, one quick thing. Yeah, I think we should go to Q&A. Um, I wanted to make one comment. Um, I remember, like, I was talking to somebody from the Sky Island Alliance, and I asked, like, how long it would take with all the damage that's been done by the all the border infrastructure. And they, and they I don't know how correct this is, but they said five, it was going to take 500 years of doing nothing for, for the desert to restore itself. I thought, wow. Um, but I, but yeah, I think right now maybe we should go to Q and A. Um, I did want to go into Q and A with one one last question to you, um, and it's pertinent. This is actually Melissa, um, we, when we were brainstorming earlier. Um, but what is not being covered that you see? Like, what are some some stories that um, you see from your point of view that need that would that you'd like to see covered, and then. Are we gonna are we gonna put a microphone around? Yes. Is that what's gonna? Oh, all right, great. Also, want to say since this is a podcast and it will come out later, if you don't want your name in the podcast, just when you ask your question, just don't say your name. <laughs> um, just a little um, heads up. Thank you, Todd. That's a good question. And what's not being covered, or what's not being covered enough, I think, or supported enough, is also, the, the good things that are happening. I think uh, the narrative of the border, it is very negative. I usually ask people that come from outside, uh, it's like, hey, if you can define the border with one word, what word would that be? And it's like, you'll be, uh, you probably know what comes out. You know, the pattern tends to be really negative. But uh, I think there is a lot of positive things happening. You know, there are groups, um, actually, we have a group today in the crowd. Seeds from Nogales that are doing amazing work, restoring some land and teaching people uh, how to uh, grow vegetables. Uh, people of color that is doing amazing work that we need to continue to highlight, especially um, 
and really the more people knows about it you know that the border it is like we were saying not it's not that such a bad place it is uh there is great things happening and i think if we continue to build on the good things we're going to hopefully someday change that narrative and have the people also understand the importance of this sometimes when people from other parts of the country think about the borderlands is like this wasteland of doesn't have any life on it and that the people that lives here don't care and i think uh, that reflects of the decisions that are being taken for people on the borderlands they're usually not taken by people from the borderlands they come from outside and we are like right here in this um, uh, in this territory you know that there is a huge overlap of cultures right here. Uh, there was an author, I don't remember his name, they call it the third nation, that we get all these different uh, things that move through here, but there is also a reminder that there is a community that it is stable, that lives here and cares about this place, and really uh, we also need to highlight that community as well. Mm. I think that's what I wanted to say. I'm so glad you said that because you reminded me that the Border Chronicle is all about highlighting the work that border communities are doing because border communities are the future, basically. Already we're, we see migration, we see climate change. Technology, like uh, Todd was talking about, you know, is, is deployed here that will someday be used in the interior of the country. So everything that's going to happen in the interior of the country, you're going to see here first. So really, everybody here is a pioneer, you know, and and doing really uh, important work, and and that's what we really want to highlight uh, at the Border Chronicle. To I want to say also, Dora Rodriguez is here, who has a migrant outreach center in Sasave that does really awesome work, and I know there's other folks here too. Uh, so we're hoping we can talk about that in the in the Q and A, and and maybe talk about what you all are working on and what you would like us to cover that you haven't seen covered, I think, from a border community perspective. So we will just uh, pass the mic around to you all. And you'll be in the podcast. Given your remarks on the <coughs> robot dog and facial recognition, as we see on the slide behind you, um, infrared and drone technologies, why do they build a wall at all? Maybe you could answer that. Uh, it's mostly, I, I think, you know, for my understanding, once I start, like, looking at the facts and the players on the room, it is all political and economical, right? We um, we know that it, it was a uh, the friend uh, called uh, Miles says the most poli uh, the most expensive political prompt in U.S. history, and also we are talking about uh, a business being made. A lot of people made a lot of money with that wall, so it's not really uh, rocket science. It is. The part that is always sad, you know, and as a culture we continue to do and put also uh, that we always continue to leave uh, the ecological part or the environmental part 
on the back, you know, like it doesn't really get acknowledged. We and and that's the part of the narrative that politicians use, and we need to really, as communities, really push politicians to put the ecological part or the ecological effort up in the front. I think we are uh, in a time right now that it's we don't have time to lose, right? 500 years, I don't know if we're gonna get to see that many. You know, I think we are, right now it is so important that we take direct action like yesterday. You know, like, like that saying, you know, the best time to plant a, a tree was 10 years ago, the other best time is now. And same thing with the border issues. Any other questions, comments? <laughs> Hi, um, <clears throat> my name's Kathleen, and I'm from Buffalo, New York as well. So and it made me think, like, the farther away from the border we are, the less I knew, at any rate. And then the closer I am to the border, it seems the sentiment is the less we want to know. Um, I picked up a book by Miriam Davidson, Lives on the Border, or Lives on the Line, and it gave me a little bit of insight as to where I'm living currently and what's going on. So I'm more curious now. And that's why I'm here at the forum. My question is this, um, if I want to continue to be educated about this, how will the two of you continue to report uh, the information that this gentleman is giving in terms of the Sierra Club and the chapter that he's involved with? Yeah, I just want to say, if you are interested, uh, Jen and Judith back there, uh, they have a, a newsletter sign up. We send a newsletter monthly that you can hear some of the current actions and of course uh, continue to or subscribe to uh, the Border Chronicle as well. Yeah, I'm, I mostly cover the Texas border issue. So the border wall around the National Butterfly Center is something I cover quite a lot of and, and what's happening there right now and, and uh, and Todd does quite a bit on Arizona, and he's also written several books on on the wall and climate change and migration. And now I'm speaking for you. But <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, but we're rest assured, like we will. I mean, I would, as far as the Sierra Club, I would sign up with them for sure. Um, but we're going to cover these issues with the Border Chronicle. These are important issues for us, and uh, um, precisely why we asked Eric, like for. What are some of the story? What are some of the stories that aren't being told or not not being brought out enough? That's what we. I'm writing this down in my notebook right now. I already have like four story ideas just listening to Eric talk. So the, these sorts of issues are important, as, as well as all the other issues that we've talked about or what you see behind us. So we'll be doing our diligence and putting out two pieces a week um, going forward. Uh, so yeah. Thank you for, for being here, Todd and Melissa and, and Eric. I, I wanted to make a comment to play off of uh, what Eric mentioned about the wildlife. And he and a number of us within the coalition are going to be starting a grassroots campaign to speak directly to wildlife connectivity. Um, and I welcome you all to, uh, this is kind of our mascot postcard, my husband, <laughs> created um, with the Madrian Archipelago Wildlife Center, which is located in the western Huachuca Mountains. 
and we've been ground truthing um, border devastation for about three years now. And at the wildlife issue, um, I wrote an opinion piece about in 2019, how they get through, and they still don't know how they're gonna do it. <laughs> so as Eric said, you know, we're in these meetings with Customs Border Protection and the eight and a half by 11 wildlife openings and I just heard the word Stormgate the other day from Paul Enriquez. But so it's, it's huge. And so if you would like to help us, um, we'll be unveiling it in the next few weeks because we're in the planning stages now. But I, I wanted to commend these writers. Um, Todd's books are brilliant. Um, I hope you brought some. Bridges, building bridges. No. Anyway, so I just wanted to throw that out as a suggestion to the crowd of taking action. Um, getting involved and in, in speaking to your potential candidates about it, too. We're in a very viable time, and I think the political issue of this walking along the border wall, baloney, you know, and more border security. The wall doesn't work. As uh, <laughs> It doesn't work. Anyway, thank you for being here and for letting me make a comment. Thank you guys for being in here. You guys are amazing. Big fan. <laughs> um, Eric, amazing. Uh, the question I really had is just to, when you're talking, I'm picturing the border wall where we usually are, you know, putting water, taking a hike in those trails. And I'm always thinking, is there a camera here where not only the Border Patrol cameras, but you guys, trying to get the, the pictures, you know, of our animals being cut out there or they're not even there. So is it any account on that? Because numbers are so important. I learned that to present to these crazy people who are doing our policies. And numbers are important and pictures. And look at this is the award they could have crossed and it got stranded on the other side. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I also really admire the work you do. Thank you for your work. And cameras, yeah, there is a lot of uh, cameras out there, probably not enough to document all of the uh, wildlife passages that, or um, activity that happens. I personally don't do that work. I won't take credit for that. Wildlands Network, it is an organization that uh, spends a lot of time setting up these uh, wildlife cameras in the in areas that they have already identified as migration corridors. So if you're interested to learn more about this uh, and what comes out, I think Wildlands Network, it is a great organization that is doing amazing work documenting. Uh, also Sky Islands Alliance and uh, Cuenca Los Ojos in Mexico. Uh, there is a lot of uh, cameras and tracking that they do. They're really, uh, we are in a really uh, rich, biodiverse area, especially right here in Patagonia. You know, I, this is the northernmost area where a lot of animals come from the south, like including a jaguar. You know, like who would guess that the Sonoran Desert might have jaguars? Well, we had. And I say we had because now definitely we're making it really hard for them. Hopefully they will still continue figuring a way to cross that border. But you gotta remember that nature has no borders, right? That is a completely human uh, 
colonizing invention, right? I think what, um, so we also have right here the southernmost area where animals from the north and the Sky Islands, these really high mountains that we have around here, they have an amazing biodiversity. A lot of endemic species, uh, the Pajarito Mountains just, next, uh, just west from Nogales have uh, endemic species as well. So it is uh, an extreme uh, valuable space here that we, that we sit on. Um, yeah, I was saying nature has no borders. I like to say always, uh, like I like to think like nature, right? Nature it is, uh, for me personally, it's always been my best teacher. If when I wanna learn something, I try to go out and learn it from nature because uh, there's so much le lessons to be learned there and nature has, uh, doesn't have the concept of those uh, constructed walls. Uh, it has something called an edge and an edge is when an ecosystem meets another one. Let's say a mountain and goes into the lower desert. And these edges are such an important part because that's where the most biodiverse areas are. It's where the species from one side meet the other ones from another. I like to think about the borderlands region like this edge, that this uh, amazing biodiversity happens. And uh, also nature does something really interesting. When there is a big disturbance, uh, send something called the pioneer species. They start like working the ground and make it uh, habitable for the next generations to come. So I just wanna invite you all to think about yourself as this pioneer species working on these really disturbed grounds and making it, make it livable for the next generations that are coming behind us. I wanna also say one day, hey son, look at this mountain. This is where the jaguars live. Instead of saying, look at this mountain, son, this is where the Jaguar used to live until we build that wall. Yeah, speaking of the Jaguar. <laughs> Did people see that the, the, the Jaguar El Jefe was uh, spotted in central Sonora? That's incredible news, because that was here in the Santa Rita, the, and, and apparently it was crossed the border a couple times. So there's an example of Right. Yeah. It's a different bell in people's minds, I think. And Sky Island Alliance has a wonderful graphic that uh, we use that shows we are actually at the juncture of six different biomes. And we have all the plants and animals from each of those biomes that pass through this area here. So we have greater biological diversity than anywhere else in the United States. And I wanna be sure too that everybody is aware that E.O. Wilson in his book, Half Earth, identified this region from science, scientists that he asked who all agreed that this region is one of the top five regions in the entire world most in need of protection for species survival. And that is where we are. And one of the things that has to happen is take down that damn border wall, please, and thank you. And, and thank you for all the work that everybody's doing. But I wanted to be sure to speak those things out loud because if anyone here doesn't know those facts, they are important facts to know. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I guess, do we have time, Maggie, for maybe one more question or comment? 
Yes. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I know. Maggie brought us in. Now she's going to take us out. A very finicky microphone. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Okay. Okay, five seconds. He's going to have to hold that battery in. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have a question. How can we integrate more the question of humanitarian aid to migrants, migration, and the environment, the border wall? and global, uh, global warming, climate change. Because humans are animals too, and we're having a lot of deaths in the desert for us animals. And so, you know, for example, there's a humanitarian aid. I think it's really great we're all working together to put this presentation on. And how can we... Unified border voice. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Maggie. I think we are all, uh, all of those interconnections that are happening definitely and directly impacting the borderlands community. Talking about immigration, a lot of people um, were asking me this morning, we had a volunteer training, it's like, why are people showing up at the border? And it's like, or where do they come from, and why are they here? You know, and I think it's a, it's an interesting question to ask. You know, and it is doesn't have one single answer. It, it all goes to a lot of different reasons that are pushing people away from their countries, and they are all like, it can be, for example, uh, gang-related violence. It can be, uh, um, it like economics, it can be that their government has a dictatorship, or it can be global warming. I think one of the things that is really important to acknowledge is that as we, uh, as we continue on this path that we are on of like uh, continue really heavy on fossil fuels and uh, just different things that are n n causing and also uh, increasing the um, the global warming effect, you see uh, how in some countries, usually like uh, communities, for example, Haiti. What happened in Haiti, I believe it was a couple years ago, that they were hit by two hurricanes of an intensity that never seen before. And what do we have here at the borderlands? A group of people coming from Haiti that their homes were completely destroyed. We have people from Nicaragua or places that were growing food and none of those uh, lands are not suitable for growing crops anymore because the rain stopped. So I think it is important to think about global warming not like something that will might come in the future, that is like hanging around there, but it's not gonna really affect us because it is already affecting us. It is uh, indirectly impacting border communities and putting all the uh, pressure on the first on those communities that live there and then or like making them go through these journeys that are just incredible just to imagine like leaving their homelands to travel across countries through all this suffering 
uh, or sometimes with members, small members of their family and to come to a border where they, who knows what's gonna happen. So I think there is, uh, it is definitely interconnected and because uh, what we can do, I always ask people, you know, like, uh, what would you do uh, if you have $30 million? And people will be like, wow. Uh, they always ask, how, how do you get to that number? Well, it's how much it costs to build one mile of border wall. So we start thinking or really like, how do we really invest our resources? And we continue to uh, put li little band-aids here and there and spending really expensive band-aids and not really addressing the root causes of migration and global warming and we continue to ignore and we continue to uh, just think about resources like they're unlimited and we should have access to as much and as many as we can because we, sh we deserve it, then we are going to continuously uh, fall in that trap and continue to cause harm to future generations and to communities that are already feeling the effects of this. Yeah, just and um, I helped write a report last year um, that looked at the top ten emitters, uh, historic emitters uh, of greenhouse gas emissions, and um, the United States was number one for one. And uh, then we took uh, we looked at border and immigration enforcement budgets versus um, climate action, and um, the ratio. Um, well, for the U the U.S. was thir thirteen to one in favor of border and immigration enforcement, and like in the billions and billions and billions of dollars um, versus climate action, right? And I that 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 sort of was in light. I mean, I knew that it was going to be the ratio. I had figured from previous reporting that the that ratio was going to be pretty high, but even that kind of surprised me. And it's just amazing when you start parsing out the numbers, like Eric was just saying, and looking at them and thinking. Well, couldn't that go in another place? Or if we start like questioning like those sort, what is security? What does security mean? Well, how is how are we told that security is versus what is human security versus homeland security, right? And start asking those questions. All of a sudden, different ideas start to percolate. And I think that's something we also have been like investigating journalistically, at least with the with the Border Chronicle, like take trying to like look at some of those connections and draw those out and look at different, even different ways of thinking or framing. Yeah. All right, well, thank you all so much for coming. We really appreciate it. <laughs>